There's this myth that is easy to buy into, that in order to be beautiful, life has to be perfect. That in order to experience fullness and joy and calling, then we should get back to the way we were before, before the illness or the accident or the job loss or the grief or that relationship. But it just isn't true. You know it. I know it. And my guests today know it too. My name is Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. My guests today were so young and baby married when their lives unraveled. So the life they rebuilt looks dramatically different than the one they thought they would have. Theirs is not a story of triumph over difficulty, but of the enduringness of suffering and recovery and the necessity of caregiving and love over the long haul. I feel so lucky that I get to be speaking to them some 15 years after the original crisis, because theirs is the kind of story that gets better and better because it is full of hard-won hope and resilience and years and years of commitment to one another and to the habits that make hope possible. Together, they tell a story of profound retrospective wisdom they can trace, a story of miracles in the face of terrible odds, a story of God's persistent love during the darkest of moments, a story of resilience that was born because of good habits. Beth Moore said something lovely to me once. She said, God didn't cause this suffering, but God will make it matter. These are two people working really hard to make all the best and worst parts of their lives matter. Today, I have the great honor of speaking with not one, but two incredible people. Catherine and Jay Wolf are survivors and communicators and advocates. Catherine's life nearly ended with a catastrophic stroke, and miraculously, she survived and continues her recovery to this day. And Catherine and Jay share their story of this beautiful, rich, resilient hope through their books, Hope Heals and Suffer Strong, and through the camp they created for families with disabilities called Hope Heals Camp. They live in Atlanta with their two boys, and I love them. I just love them. Jay and Catherine, thank you so much for doing this with me today. I've been so excited about this. Oh, we're so glad to be here, Kate. What, what a gift to us. I love you right back. Pleasure is ours. Yeah. This is a weird way of starting, but I wondered if you guys could introduce each other, but not the you you are now, like the young you, like the before times. Okay. Here. What do you, you want to serve? Okay. Um, be kind. <laughs> I'll try to be kind. I'm just kidding. Jay is a incredibly thoughtful, considerate, compassionate person who, if this is before the stroke, maybe wasn't super mature. Fair. Um, didn't have to be. More hair? Yeah, more hair back then. Okay, um, what about you? I would say, okay. when I think back about um, the first time I met Catherine, which we met in the cafeteria at the school that we went to in college, and um, it truly, it felt like a movie 
moment. You know, one of those where you're just like the slow motion, you know, beautiful blonde across the room. Like, I, and I was, you know, this kind of coming into my own um, 18 year old guy. So it was, it, Catherine just embodied externally this incredible beauty and sort of vibrance, uh, even at the kind of lunchroom. But then I looked down at her lunch tray and it was obscenely piled with everything. <laughs> you know, Gorgeous, so like, but a big eater. <laughs> <laughs> the buffet of life and and in new <laughs> metaphorical and physical ways that um that continues to this day when we met when we were 18 so i mean the the brains were not uh nearly done Definitely not, yeah not for our brains <laughs> and then they kind of together which is um i don't recommend it for everybody but it the the true it feels like convergence of our growing brains i think created something that has helped us withstand a lot of suffering. Very true. Helped us cope. Yeah. You both were on kind of a, well, like a very exciting trajectory. There was like, I don't know if you had that feeling where it's like, it's a ladder. I'm going somewhere. I, I don't theologically believe in ladders that always go up, but Hey, you know, things happen to be going really well. Yeah. But, yeah. We were in LA really inexplicably we didn't know anybody there we met in college like i said and, and married right after and so we just wanted to have an adventure together and la was kind of the the place that checked a lot of those boxes we um realized actually i did not know that i had gotten into pepperdine hmm. law school which is where i went to law school until we were already driving across the country so we we really were set on just this new um, place and, and sort of finding this adventure and these dreams together before we even knew kind of how we were going to justify <laughs> doing it. Thankfully, it, it kind of worked out. And, uh, so you just left and then you were like, well, something's, I hope there's going to be a set of parachutes there. I never would have considered myself a person who is like that, that could just jump into things. but. Now that we are old, we turned 40 this year, I recognize that I think we both have an ability to kind of pivot and just do the thing, just kind of like go and figure it out as we go. And like, yeah, that sounds cool. Okay, great. And that's been a a tremendous gift of some deep suffering when you're young is you can kind of just, yeah, go. Let it inform how you live for sure. But okay, I guess this is the next right step forward. Yeah, it seems kind of na- naive just to like, let's move across the country, throw all of our wedding gifts in the back of our car and pray that <laughs> I get into the school, the one school that I applied to. Yet what was naivety then kind of has evolved to this sort of this uh, muscle memory. Changes you go. Yeah, absolutely. Not many people have such an intense before and after experience so young. If you don't mind taking me back to the moment of that stroke that changed everything, this was, I mean, this was a, this was an entirely new world you were thrust into. Right. It was a completely quote unquote normal day I felt funny and I felt funny for six months since my son was born. So I didn't think anything of it and I was healthy 
quote unquote, I had no medical history, no family history, no symptoms, no current health problems of any kind. Out of nowhere, I ended up having a massive brainstem stroke due to a collection of blood vessels I'd never known I had. They're called an ABM, an arterial venous malformation, which is like a really, really crazy, terrible brain aneurysm. There are actually four aneurysms on this collection, and it had grown and grown and grown on my brain stem my whole life. I never knew that I had it. And then it ruptured um, as a 26-year-old. And to this day, doctors are baffled that I'm alive. It's really not something that is survivable. And um, obviously, I did. But as you are seeing, Kate, um, there's pretty significant deficits um, post coming out of the 16-hour surgery to remove the AVM. Yeah. Jay, you must have been terrified. And also your, your after must have been very dramatically different. Did your role just change in the relationship immediately? Yeah. Um, so I was a student, new dad, kind of unexpectedly in the final window of law school of that season. And, and the stroke happened, um, it literally happened as I was in between my final classes of law school. And I'd come back to the apartment at the Marion housing dorm to uh, finish up a paper I had procrastinated on. <laughs> so procrastinate, yeah. um, save your life. You're welcome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we try not to tell our 14 year old that because it may create some bad habits, but with the reality is, yeah, that was, it was, a, it was this, this tiny window of time that I was there and able to call 911 for her. She just literally, I was like, I don't feel right. And then everything changed in a few seconds forever after that. And, and that, that's the fragility of life in this world and our bodies and our brains. And that time at 26, we, there wasn't even a universe where we could have imagined such a reversal, just no warning, no symptoms, no family history, nothing. An ordinary day making food for some other friends who had had a baby, you know, all of a sudden it's thrust into this new caregiving realm, but even before that, an advocacy realm, which is kind of interesting that I was maybe at the height of my advocacy law school training. And so I think a lot of times when you're thrust into medical crises, you're all of a sudden um, so unaware of how, not even just the medical side of things works, but right. how the bigger system of insurance and hospitals and all these things work. And yet I was utterly devastated and heartbroken and upended, but also somehow teed up to enter in to that new space and, and sort of be helpful, really helpful as an advocate for my wife to navigate that whole dysfunctional, crazy system that is, um, you know, just the American medical culture. And there was um, a couple of years that were spent really in this advocate role, just sort of like, I, if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to help pull you out of this pit and help you really know in a in an embodied in-person way that you're not alone. So we'd go to the therapy, you know, for years together, just incremental, just step by step out of yeah. um, very lowest depths, which included not 
you know, possibly even waking up. It was likely she would be vegetative or um, the, the, the injury was around her brainstem. So to be locked in, uh, locked in syndrome was really one of the more horrific experiences where you're fully paralyzed in your body, but you're aware and conscious. Um, and that was a possibility. And so when it was pretty soon, maybe a couple of days after the stroke, it was there was this sort of growing awareness that Catherine was actually in there and she was trying to wake up out of this medically induced coma against really all the odds. That was the beginning of sort of this hope that there was life. That was the the tiniest spark that was there. And could I help fan it into flame? And that was also just a whole community of people. And even even in the digital age, it was 2008. So it was like everybody was on Facebook, you know, you didn't have to have a college address anymore. And there was just sort of this growing digital connection that of course, we're still guinea pigs for and seeing the fallout from, but for us and in our story in that moment, it connected us this broader community that was, was to enter into this tragedy with us. Um, It's in fact, it uh, crashed UCLA's hospital website because of like the kind of medical update website that we linked to uh, UCLA. So there was a lot. That's so sweet. Such a testimony to that. Like the, the more catastrophic the single moment, the more, I mean, the absurd and enormous teamwork it takes to even attempt to like, gosh, I didn't realize how much of suffering was just going to be like being on hold with Linda in, you know, in, in records and being like, Hey Linda, I'm just, trying not to fall into medical bankruptcy so if you could <laughs> you could help me during this the worst moment of my life oh that would my be great God. no kidding. there's so much um salt in the wounds that you just yeah. never see coming um right and some of it's unintentional some of it is intentional and some of it's the system and um there's such there's so many layers especially when there's medical scenarios like this of, of just devastation but I would stay in ICU for 40 days and then in a different part of the hospital, the acute rehab for nearly four months and then transition to about a year and a half at an acute rehab facility where I lived inpatient for the first six months. Mm-hmm. And slowly I was relearning how to eat and speak and walk and really live. But in in that very long amount of time you can imagine as you deal with ongoing insurance and just all the just medical junk of this that it's it was significant mm-hmm. it reminds me of um we had this lovely podcast conversation with uh taylor harris oh she said something that like you all are reminding me of she said um well, that's the thing about befores and afters is that after can last forever. Yeah. And like, it's the perpetuity of it, right? Like it's the, it, it's so helpful. It's so rich for me to hear you guys speak so candidly about the enduringness of pain because you're both such deeply hopeful people. You're so, I mean, you're so like, generously kind and positive all the time, which is something I really like. I, I just, I see it, uh, shining like the noonday sun, like hundreds of miles from where you're standing at any moment. But like, that's, it's incredibly hard one. Like you talk, 
I mean, you've used that image of like it you being refined in it, but it's, there's, there's like a, a crystallizing quality that this has had in your life. Yeah. That kind of seems core now, like inseparable from who you've become. I think, I mean, we're coming up on 15 years of a new reality. You know, I think there's been so many seasons, first of all, the probably first two years of just baseline recovery then about five years of sort of just still emergency mode. And I think then the enduring work and probably what's catalyzed everything and concretized it most deeply within us um, would be that ongoing suffering after the suffering. One time we probably a couple years after the stroke had this doctor's appointment with our really beloved neurosurgeon who took a great risk to save her life. Yeah. Um, even though I was a lawyer and he knew probably if it didn't go well, <laughs> he wasn't great, which is really also sad, but he nonetheless bravely yeah. decided to operate in this very hopeless case. And he came into the exam room again, two years after the stroke, kind of just a follow-up appointment and was crying. And that's not great when your doctor is crying, you know, when you oh. news and he said, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have another aneurysm that's totally separate and it's behind your unaffected side of your brain. And I think in that moment, after all we had sort of against all odds gone through to, to recognize that it might always be this way was maybe the most devastating reality check and that there wasn't going to be a quota on suffering no matter what we had gone through. And you know, you thought even like at least maybe we you'd take the brain the table. That's right. Especially when you handled it so well. I mean, like I cleared the obstacle course, you monsters. Like <laughs> haven't I earned my way? Into a, yes. I, I remember right after being diagnosed, I, I would always get stuck on those stories where, you know, someone would have just survived one thing only to have gotten another. And I remember this lovely person in the hallway of the hospital that I knew and she, she was there running an errand for her partner. And she was like, Kate, she's maybe, I don't know, 60 years old. And she was like, Kate, I've got this lovely group of friends, eight couples. I'm the only one who's lost two husbands, got cancer twice, lost, suffered the devastating loss of my child. Like when, just like, I know that life isn't fair, but I guess I did sort of Every time I look at this group of happy, lucky people, part of me is, and this is all in our my, in my Christian seminary, and she's just like, part of me is like, Kate, what the hell? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, that is like such a, it's such a deeply earned feeling, I think. Yeah. For sure. And it's not right. It's not fair. And um, I, I think probably for me, while that question has reverberated, of honestly, what the hell? Honestly. <laughs> I think I I somehow managed to wrap my mind around fairly early that it, the question is a little bit not even worth asking. I just want I want to get on with this. This is the reality. Mm-hmm. So I got to figure out how to carry on in it. Mm-hmm. And like being really like whatever the emotions are like really angry, is it going to serve my family? Is it going to serve me? Is it going to do anyone any good? And 
what are you going to do with what you got? I, I don't know where it came from, really, because it makes much more sense to be really bitter. It does. Um, but I kind of tuned into that, like, you cannot remotely control what happens to you. But now you do have control over how you think about it, how you n- narrate it to your children, how you like live with it, how you carry it. And that really, I don't know, like resonated with me. Things were so, and continue to be in some ways, really hard. So I guess that kind of helped keep me sane. It's like, I got to kind of keep the rails on the bitterness. And I don't know, it's it's really um, just helped keep the yeah. keep me together. It feels like a prayer, like, God, I want to live in reality. Like, help me live here with you. But like, I have to live that man. When you say that, it feels that anchors, that anchors my brain to hear you say that. Cause then, cause then we're, then we're moving. Then we're like, well, now I'm a, now I'm, and I'm a mom like this and I'm a wife like this. So like, you're going to have to be here, God, or else it's not really going to work for either of us. <laughs> Absolutely. You're going to have to meet me in every moment for the rest of my life, or I'm not going to be able to live this life. Yes. And yes. There's, and there's grief still. I mean, I think there's certain um, a certain resolve and a certain, like, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to just keep moving forward and uh, mm-hmm. the life we thought we would have and even some of the hard trauma we've been through like that can't be what's right in front of our face all the time and and sometimes you kind of just you know you pull it together and you get out of bed and you've got kids and loved ones and you just have to do what you have to do um that line is i think gerda is like you know admit and learn learn to love what must be done sometimes oh my gosh that's good and yet then sometimes the grief sort of you've held it all together and it just kind of comes out back sometimes, you know? Yeah. It's like rock with like, you didn't realize there was a vein that runs through it. And then you like feel the cracking. You're like, okay, 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 okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then those cracks, we, we repair together and those ruptures, you know, we, when everything looks like it's going to just fall completely apart, we, keep building it back up together again, something new. Like from a historical perspective, may I just say as an American religious historian, when people look back on this, the way the popular conceptions about suffering, they will see that you changed. You've done a beautiful job standing in front of people, letting yourself be pressed in by others and normalizing the experience of grief in a culture that really prefers when we are either immediately over it we're so obsessively victorious that we can't acknowledge our suffering. You've let yourself be squeezed in by, by putting other people around you too, that, mm. I mean, that you, you've been co-sufferers. It has been so shockingly healing to be on a stage in a wheelchair telling the authentic story. There's something very beautiful about being a wounded healer, as Henry Allen says, that somehow, like, not not when it's all better, you know, I'm 
now. Now I, I'll do it now. Right. I'm, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm living my best life now in a way, you know, <laughs> like in a wheelchair on the stage with a paralyzed face. Mm-hmm. And maybe that really does something deep to the brain. And that co-suffering, I mean, as you referenced, that continues to evolve as this motivating reality of compassion, which is really the best translation, I think, is, you know, we're co-suffering together, not just sort of pitying each other or sort of thinking nice thoughts, but getting under the weight of the world together. When we have every excuse not to not to enter in to each other's pain, because we already have enough on our plate, you know, Mm -hmm. we're good. And it would be understandable if you just sort of isolated yourself off from anyone else in the world and the reality of their suffering. And yet we have found sort of opening our hearts rather than sort of closing them up, entering into those other stories of pain and going back to those places that have wounded us, which also are the places nobody wants to go back to. I don't want to remember brain rehab. The brain, like we forget things for a reason. We're just like, no, thank you. That was over. Right, right. But I think for us, we, it was just through other humans, other stories, people saying, hey, you gave me permission to breathe. And then also to keep going and to hope for something within yeah. this new and upended life that is still good. Mm-hmm. And, and so we were so moved, I think, by this reality, it made us want to go back to the brain rehabs and to the caregivers and to the stroke survivors and to the people. Oh, That's been the most healing Part of it, it wasn't an individual healing. It was an actual sort of this counterintuitive opportunity to be healed by going back to the places that wounded us. Mm-hmm. And the healing continues in that space. It feels like when you're describing this co-suffering, because I remember the two big lies I had buried in the horror of it was, um, I'm alone. No one has gone through this. Like, how could anyone know what with my life being horribly transformed, like with the cost I'm paying. And then when you're surrounded by other people, it is certainly overwhelmingly less lonely. And like the loneliness is such an intense, Mm. I think, spiritual lie, really. That's really interesting. I've never thought of this before. But as horrific as brain rehab was, and it was terrible, the stuff of your nightmares we were all in it together. All these different brain, broken brains and broken bodies all in a room. So when I'm doing physical therapy and relearning to walk with a quadriplegic two feet from me who can't move his pinky, maybe it was helping to, you know, heal my brain that, this is not the only thing. And so it made me feel less alone in my suffering. And I've never thought how, I mean, I've thought for sure about the perspective of suffering of others, but never how even that model of a group rehab probably did incredible things for me, recognizing that I was not as alone as I was tempted to feel. I was getting swallow therapy because I couldn't eat for almost the full first year. And they would test me repeatedly, and I kept failing tests, and it was horrific. And I would obsessively ask the swallow therapist, speech therapist, 
do you know other people who this has happened to? Do other people eat food? Do they swallow? Can they swallow their mm -hmm. own spit? Do you know? Can you tell me stories of when they started to eat again? When mm -hmm. did they cross over? And she was very diplomatic and, you know, never said what, what, what could be said, which was, this is extremely rare and you probably will never eat again. She never told me that. So, some therapists told Jay that, actually. I thought of it probably as my issue, whereas somebody else would have another really, really awful issue. And maybe they're all awful and they're all different, but we're kind of in it together. And maybe that was really like a healing thing for me. I love that you're like, no, I'll just, what if I centralized people who, who feel like their lives are just constant sandcastles and they're just shoring up against you know, the wave after wave. The other thing that your witness to me reminds me of is the lie that pain never ends. And sometimes pain is, you know, there's that weird slow time, right? Where technically five minutes have gone by, but it feels like two or 1500 hours. But you're constantly reminding people that like, that in that pain, first of all, that like, there can still be good and lovely things. And also that we are being held in God's time, like as in, this is part of, this is a ter terrible part of the story, but it's never the whole part of the story. And you're so good at that. When I look at you, I always feel the long story, which I, gives me a tremendous amount of comfort. It really does. That is beautiful to recognize. And that's nothing I don't think that we manufactured. <laughs> um, but somehow this notion of a story that God is writing has really impacted us um, for years. I told my son's preschool class um, that you love bedtime stories. And, you know, there's stories that have bad parts, sad parts, hard parts, but that's not the whole story. And our brain wants to think one moment is the whole story and it's not. And what I was really doing was preaching to my own heart when I was giving the chapel at the preschool class, because of course our moment feels like the full story, but that mm. isn't remotely true. I think, um, you know, Phil Yancey, who we've loved and learned from a long time, but he talked about faith and he defined it this way. And I, and I think it, serves for hope too, but it's believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. There is this opportunity when the world you thought you could construct and maybe that you were even entitled to lets you down in that cause and effect, right? And in that uh, being able to sort of force this future reality and there's a possibility then that you can find this story that maybe you can't even see, that maybe would be impossible by all accounts and find it somehow in this sort of hazy future. 
and then know that one day you will look back and the pieces will fit in a way you never could have seen them fitting in those moments. And that's almost like a camera out of focus. It's not like this sort of transcendent one, two, three steps, but it is what we sort of like reorient back to, that there is something that we can tap into right now that is a future reality. Yeah. Will make sense in reverse. So it's sort of I love that to help us yeah. wanting to live into the story where some seasons and some chapters feel overwhelmingly hopeless. And even for our kids, and again, we, we say this to speak it over ourselves, but to say, God made you to do the hard thing <laughs> in this good story that is being written for your life. And like we're like saying it to each other, reminding it to each other, but giving them that vision that they don't just have to long for the best things and say thank you for only the good things, but to know that like even in the hard things, they are there's something that's being given to them, something that's already been given to them, it's equipping them get out of bed tomorrow to the to the day that might be hard and <laughs> hard. Yeah. And it might be overwhelmingly good. Yeah. It's a real roll of the dice. Isn't it? Right. <laughs> yeah. We actually say that to them too. Yeah. That tomorrow might be a great day and it might be a really awful day and it might be your last day. We have no idea what tomorrow holds, but what we do know is that you can do hard things. You're up for this. I mean, and I'm talking as recently as last night to our, seriously, to our 14 year old, I drilled into him like, you can do very hard things. You have capacity for extremely hard things. Don't think you're not up for it. You aren't nearly as fragile as you think you are. Oh, Catherine, and when you say it, it makes me just glad. Because sometimes it feels like, you know, it's time to call it. <laughs> you're like, well, I think I'm all topped up. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> but you're still here. We're mm -hmm. still kicking. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. <laughs> There's a dynamic I wanted to ask you about, about giving and getting help that is really tender and hard. I think there's a lot of people in our community who are caregiving as now it's, it's almost like it's part of their personality. Like it's just so grown into there. And then there's many of us who have to receive more help than we would prefer at all in any way. Of Catherine, if you don't mind starting us, like, how does it feel to get help? And like, what happens when you don't want it and you feel righteously pissed off about something? And how does it, how hard is it to, to get help in a regular day of a regular marriage? Right. I, I mean, super complicated. You know, Jay does just about everything to help me in life from buttoning my blouse just now to shaving my armpits to, you know, fill, driving me everywhere. I can't drive a car um, pushing my wheelchair. I mean, Jay really, when I had a baby, pretty much Jay had to care for the baby. And I, you know, I was there, but he was like, mommy, that could produce a lot of 
feelings of just, I mean, sadness doesn't begin to cover it, just shame, honestly, and unworthiness. I think as early on as within the first year of the stroke, I I think I did have a moment of asking God if this was some sort of, not asking God, actually, if a- asking myself, have I believed a lie? Is God even real? And if he is real, has he made a mistake? And what is going on? And wouldn't it be easier if I just would have died? Jay could have remarried. James could have a healthy, quote unquote, mommy. Like, I shouldn't be here. And I really feel like in those very, very dark moments, I was deeply encouraged in, I mean, truth I'd known from when I was a small child that somehow if I was supposed to have died, I would have died. God doesn't make mistakes. Like, that's not how he moves. And there's no replacing me in Jay's <laughs> life. And it's true. I think that's encouraged me ever since that, um, yeah, Jay couldn't get a replacement. So even though he's having to take care of me, I'm worth it. Absolutely. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That's that's a that is such a hard one, beautiful thing to say. Yeah, good. You are too, Kate. Well, I I did all that. I mean, when you're describing that, I remember having all of those really strong like backup plans where I was like, "Hey, she'll be great." You know, this new person is going to be so much less work than all of this. And then, like, it was easy to kind of imagine a different future instead of instead of have the impossibility of this one. And so yeah. for you to come back to, like, but I am the lovely gift God gives. And so I'm going to accept the reversal of now being helped mm. is a gorgeous thing to say. Thank you. I think you've been able to say that to yourself because you've been able to say it to to other people who are in that same. Well, look at me. I'm like, right? look at me. I'm like leaning to the screen to touch Kate and say, you too, you too. I'm not alone in that. Every person with a caregiver helping them do life is worthy of care or else it would mm. not be so. Mm. So that's twisted logic to think you're not worthy because your body doesn't work correctly that's silly oh Catherine, you're so good (laughs) no i'm not it's just true like you're working here a hundred percent you are you know we are um deep in with the community of those incredible folks with disabilities on the outside, but on the inside too now, it turns out. And it is this holy, beautiful work to champion people with broken bodies and broken brains and broken hearts. I guess that's how I feel about you in this moment. 
<laughs> you're part of our our tribe i love like the that is a team i am really grateful yeah to have found <laughs> actually even even within this special tribe we have an elite club <laughs> called called the young sufferers club for people who are relatively young and then you know, mm-hmm. nearly die or become extremely disabled <laughs> or fight cancer and beat it or whatnot, or if that exists. Um, <laughs> and we kind of recognize that young suffering is mm-hmm. so incredibly powerful because mm-hmm. it informs the way you live the rest of your life. Yeah. And that obviously doesn't just mean the sufferer. It means the caregiver, the family, Everyone impacted by that person lives differently. Mm. That life is worthy. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, Catherine, my preacher, my <laughs> beautiful preacher. <laughs> Jay. You have this gorgeous bit in your book where you talk about what happens if you're having a fight and then you still have to help put her to bed and you're just feeling kind of pissy about it. And I I just loved that part of the book because you just, you almost describe it like you just, it's almost, there's a helplessness to then the more you care, then the more you love. And then you're just you let yourself get sucked back into that beautiful web again. Mm. I imagine it's like a real push pull. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think, um, thank you for reminding me of that (laughs) part because, um, it's not like a groundhog's day, but our brains, I think, especially in, um, stories like this, stories like yours, just, you can't kind of remember all the things you learned yesterday about what's good and true. <laughs> totally. You're like, I actually had a really good insight on that. <laughs> um, I think we're both actually type A, firstborn, you know, probably by all accounts, probably should not <laughs> have even gotten married for many reasons, but it works. And there is this sort of fighting for life together and for each other together. And yet the, the, the deep, weighty, horrifying reality of ongoing disability and precarious health issues and diagnoses, you know, to enter into that as a caregiver, you're just, you're taking on in so many ways, the weight of that loved one's uh, reality while the same token, not necessarily having the margin to grieve your own reality. And so that's just kind of the, the dance and the push and the pull of caregiving, you know, the reality of like, no matter what the, conflict fight the rupture i still need to put the ointment in her eye or else it's gonna she's gonna be hurt quite literally there's there's a softening of the heart and that may be the most constant prayer for us all softening from that just classification and and the the hardness of what life has done to our hearts and the breaking of it and the, the trying to protect it and then like but you know, I'm 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 all like bowed up or annoyed, or we're all both just raring to fight. But it's like, okay, well, but I need to help care for your eye, and that's that somehow it just sort of is a release valve. Um, Diffusing it diffuses some of the what feels like a bigger story, 
um, it sort of brings it back to the reality of just our how we're getting to put each other back together. And, and in so many ways, like I'm doing that for Catherine, but she's equally doing that for me um, in way more profound ways, really. And um, so that, that's been, um, I think C.S. Lewis was talking about uh, the Nazis, which we're not, maybe we won't make that, won't be the most natural setup. But that idea of like, you know, you aren't just born this monster. Like it was over time sort of, you know, you acted in hate and then you really, the emotion of hate came. And so I think if you could, could flip that with love and say like, I'm annoyed right now. I don't want to act lovingly towards you, but I, I feel compelled to act in love. And eventually over time, I really, there is a softening and a true feeling of love too. And it's not just a one and done forever, but there is this sort of practice acting even when i'm not fully feeling it and in the context of marriage and caregiving in a relationship that is this opening up of something that eventually becomes so true and deep and and overflowing and so just years that's that's been how we've continued to find our way back to each other and so good after this anyone who is you know, as reformed theology and doesn't believe in sanctification, it's going to have to change their minds, you guys, because that is a really beautiful description of like the long work of grace. And mm-hmm. there was this, um, there's this movie I saw a couple weeks ago. Um, I, uh, I wanted to have more kids. I felt really lucky that I had one, but I, you know, the feeling like you could have had this different thing that was more and, I get, I feel so lucky that I get to have these, there's these two little kids, bonus kids I have in my life. And I get to have these little sleepovers and we watch movies and I buy costumes for all of us. Uh, so and in these moments, I have these big surges of gratitude and we were watching this movie. Uh, I think it was called luck. And it was about this cartoon where a foster kid who doesn't get her forever family cannot seem to catch a break. And there was this line at the end that um, you are just like bringing to mind, which is uh, she says, well, if I had been lucky, I never would have known the people that stick. Mm. And like the intense gratitude where you get to see all the sticky love that keeps a fractured life together. And uh, you, my darlings, are very sticky people. And I am so grateful that we got to do this today. Thanks so much. Good, good thing we're sticky because you're stuck with us. <laughs> Catherine and Jay's story is such a testimony to long faithfulness, long faithfulness to God, long faithfulness to one another. But I just want to recognize that not everybody gets that feeling. Not everybody gets that partner to do this with. Either maybe they haven't found them or never married, or maybe that person left, or maybe that person died and you're still feeling the grief of it. If that's you, we see you, we love you. And I hope you will hear Catherine's words. You are worth it. You are worth caring for. 
You are worth having your needs met. You are worth shuttling to all those appointments and having someone to complain to about another day of the same stupid, unresolved, crappy problems. Your pain does not disqualify you from love. And to the caregivers who continue to put another's needs before your own, bless you. We see you. We love you. We know this isn't what you had imagined for your own life. That sometimes you are so tired or lonely or burnt out. You are worth having your needs met too. But you often don't because this is what the day required. And this is what love required. So bless you all, all you caregivers and care receivers. You who do the hard work of love and hope making. Hi, my name is Jennifer and I live in Minnesota. I've been a caretaker on and off for my husband through various cancer diagnoses and surgeries and radiation. And I recently heard a friend say it was very unfair what happened to my husband. And I thought, wow, I got completely left out of that comment which is what most people do. And I thought, you know, it all happened to me too. I was the one that white knuckled it through his surgeries with my three month old baby in tow. I was the one showering him for about six weeks when he couldn't shower after surgery. I was the one barely holding it together, but having to hold it all together for my kids and my husband. And it's just funny how people just don't really see it. They just kind of gloss over that whole part. And if someone is sick, they are definitely not doing it on their own. So yeah, I just wish people knew that other people are uh, there with them and it's equally as hard in a completely different way. Thank you. This is Amy from Ohio. I am a caregiver for my mother and have been for the last six years since my dad died. I guess I would want people to know how exhausting it is, how weary you get, and how sometimes you feel trapped. We have grown children and grandchildren out of state, um, and yet often I'm trying to juggle seeing them and care for my mom, and can we actually go on vacation? So um, it's just a lot. It's, It's more than you think it's going to be. Hi, Kate. This is Karen from Clayton, North Carolina. I think when you're someone who has to be cared for, no day is the same. There are some days you feel better than others, and on those days, you want to be independent as much as you can, and so you try to do things but your caregiver is used to helping you do those things so it's the stance of let me do what i can do for myself while he or she may be so used to doing them for you that they don't realize you're just trying to get some of your independence back. 
So it's something that requires a lot of honest and open communication so feelings don't get hurt. Hi, this is Kristen. I'm calling from Greensboro, North Carolina. I took care of my husband when he had stage 4 cancer. Our children were little. During all of his treatment, I kept it together, and I maintained a positive attitude for our children, and I stayed hopeful and optimistic for him. Afterward was when I kind of fell apart and had a hard time dealing with it. And it was interesting because at that point he was better, and he was so relieved, and he didn't want to relive what he had been through. And to him, he kept saying, it's in my rearview mirror. Things are behind him. And everyone was so happy for us. But then I was so sad later, I think just keeping the trauma in all that time. So I guess what I want people to know is that sometimes we hold in our own emotions for other people and then have to deal with it later on down the road. Thank you. Hi, Kate. This is Carrie calling from Wisconsin. My husband has a neurological disease that is not only affecting his cognitive abilities, but as as well as his um, involuntary motor. Um, So what I wish people would stop asking or saying to me is, I don't know how you do it. Well, there really isn't a choice. And, of course, I live in the moment, good or bad. And, of course, I am going to do it, no matter what it entails and no matter what life brings me. So I would hope that people would start listening and leaning in a little bit more and stop saying that phrase, I don't know how you do it. A really special thank you to our generous partners who make this work possible. Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment. Duke Divinity School and Leadership Education. And to my wonderful team, Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, Brenda Thompson, Keith Weston, Jeb, and Sammy. Thank you. And I would love to hear what you thought about this episode. Would you do me a favor and leave a review on Apple Podcasts? It really, really means a lot to us when we get to hear what we do well and also might even do better. You can also leave us a voicemail, and who knows, we might even be able to use your voice on the air. Call us at 919-322-8731. All right, lovelies, I'll talk to you next week. But in the meantime, come find me online at Kate C. Bowler. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler.